Welcome to a special edition of our podcast, Deeks and Democracy, on the day after Election Day. Gwyneth Lonergan, a Wake Forest senior, took the time to speak with me today about her involvement in this election. Over the past couple of months, she has interned for the coordinated campaign in Maine, specifically with Democrat Senate challenger Sarah Gideon, who's hoping to unseat long-standing moderate Republican Susan Collins. But she has also worked with the Biden campaign there and across the country. She shares her insights with us today about what we know, what we don't know, and where we go from here. My first question to you is, how did you get involved in the Biden campaign and what specifically, what work specifically have you been doing for them? So um, I was really looking for a political internship um, because I'm graduating in May. Um, we are. And uh, one of my close friends that was a theater and politics major like me that graduated in May, he is from Maine. Um, and he was he got a job as an organizer for the Maine Democratic Party. Um, and that is a very competitive Senate race right now. Um, so we're still waiting to hear back on that. But um, he he put it out in the he put it out in the world that he was looking for some interns. And uh, I was the first person to respond and say, I would love to work with you because um, we have a great working relationship at Wake. Uh, so. And of course, you know, it's a, because I knew it was a competitive seat, I thought that would be a really, that would be a really interesting experience. And um, really, I would put in a lot of hard work and hopefully see some positive result. Uh, so it was a coordinated campaign with the Biden campaign with Sarah Gideon um, for Senate and, uh, and the House races there. So um, I, ever since like August 26th, um, I've been on the phones with Mainers. Um, throughout like Oxford County, which is in uh, eastern, western Maine, <laughs> western Maine. And um, that that was a bit of a learning curve because as much as I love to talk to people, I was very, I was very scared to phone bank. And I know a lot of people feel that way. Um, but, you know, getting in the groove things, I really enjoyed some of the conversations I was having. So I spent a lot of time on, time on the phone. Uh, and I also crafted email messaging um, to, you know, update Mainers on what we were doing, um, get, getting them involved in phone banking. And then I heavily shifted to recruitment because we, um, because, you know, the, the more the merrier and we knew we needed to reach as many people as we could. So um, during the time of COVID, we were, you know, we are um, heavily phone banking. But then at some point in the last few weeks, we switched to door-to-door canvassing because we know that that is more, um, that's going to reach more voters. So I was heavily recruiting for, for those opportunities as well. So that's how I spent most of my time. Absolutely. And we've talked on this podcast before about how difficult it can be to phone bank, especially in a state that you're unfamiliar with. It can be a little intimidating to talk to residents and voters there who you're kind of just this outsider calling on the phone, but it's such important work. We've been kind of assessing yesterday and overnight the difference between the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign in actually campaign work. The Trump campaign has been door-to-door canvassing probably since March, since the pandemic began. And out of an abundance of caution related to the pandemic, the Biden campaign has not done that. But they did start to in the last couple of months. And 
at least experts are saying that that could have been part of the reason why Trump ended up taking Florida, for example. Mm -hmm. What are your opinions related to that delayed start of door-to-door canvassing and how it looks like the election is starting to shake out? Yeah, so... So honestly, I had never really given organizing a, a thought. Um, and so I, I wasn't too, and I'm still not too well-versed in um, the, the organizing tactics. But, um, you know, obviously I, I agree with the statistics that it is overwhelmingly more, um, more effective in getting out the vote. Um, I was a little shocked that we were, that we were uh, transitioning door to door until I learned about that. Um, I think that I think that especially in rural communities, door-to-door canvassing is is so important. Um, particularly in Maine, um, I forget the exact statistic, but I would say it's between twenty and thirty percent of Mainers don't have access to broadband, and um, you know potentially like internet ads are not reaching them, and television ads are not reaching them, and so. The most effective way to, to get to those 20 to 30 percent is door-to-door canvassing. So I think in rural communities where that is the case, where people might not have a television, they might not have um, a computer in their household, uh, and especially when we're spending so much more time at home, um, I, I do think the Trump campaign, um, if that's the case, that they've been, been door-to-door canvassing since March, that was a very that was a very effective move for them because. Since March, we have been largely at home. Um, we're not. We're not at work. We're not at school. Um, so, I think I do think that was a very a very um, effective tool for them. And I'm glad we did make the switch um, eventually. I understand both sides that why we did not out of an abundance of caution. It you know we're trying to save lives out here, so um, it, it's a double it's a double edged sword for sure. I want to talk about Maine specifically for a second, because right now we're in a position where the Senate race between Susan Collins and Sarah Gideon has not been called. The presidential race there has not been called. And Maine is kind of a it's in flux right now. Based on voters you talk to on the phone and your experience working with the state and the expertise that you've gained over the past few months, what is your best guess at what the outcome will be in Maine in the Senate race and in the presidential race? Yeah, so I I want to say that Biden has Maine. I I since yesterday I've been following AP because um, obviously that's where that's where things get called first, um, and I believe that they made a great they they made the prediction for for Joe. Um, so I'm confident there. Susan Collins, um, this would be her sixth or seventh term. So she definitely has the incumbency um, advantage. And, and that is strong. We've like, that's what we've seen with um, Joni Ernst and um, other close races, Tom Tillis. Um, So that that is the unfortunate aspect. Um, Looking at the most recent numbers, uh, Susan Collins is at about 50 point something percent 50.2. If with the rest of the votes, it goes down to to even 49.9, if if 100% reporting, it's 49.9, the great thing is that ranked choice voting is is going to go into effect. Unfortunately, if she is 50% or 50%, 50 50.1%, she's going to win. 
uh, ranked choice voting. Every, every voter that I spoke to about ranked choice voting, particularly, particularly in Maine, uh, thought it was a great idea. They were ecstatic when the um, Supreme Court refused to hear that case to, to block that decision. Uh, they think it's a great way to have, you know, different voices heard. Um, and, and a lot of the people I talked to that were voting for the Green Party candidate, Lisa Savage, ranked Sarah Gideon as their second choice, partly because Lisa encouraged them to do so um, because their, their views are aligned. So I am trying to be optimistic about the entire election um, and, and especially Maine. So I, I would love to say that ranked choice voting will, will win Sarah Gideon the seat. And, and I'm, I'm confident, I'm, I'm semi-confident about that, but I'm very confident for Joe Biden. Very interesting. Maine is, does not get a lot of attention in the media. Mm -hmm. It's getting a, a little bit of attention now just because we're waiting, but it's a very interesting state politically because you have this ranked choice voting. You have the, this potential of a, a split electoral vote capturing, which always makes things interesting. It's looking like Biden's actually going to get all of the main votes, but there is always the potential. And arguably, they're one of the states that's pioneering this alternative way of conducting elections. Ranked choice voting is gaining popularity. The The split electoral um, votes within the districts is definitely an interesting way to go about it. So I've enjoyed watching Maine um, develop over the last couple hours. And I think that we're going to know some more soon, but it's definitely, you know, I think I'm hoping it's opening Americans eyes to other possibilities in conducting elections, especially as the electoral college comes under fire and, and we explore the problems with our current election system and the ways that it can undermine the preferences of our country. So, so really looking to Maine for that. Um, are you surprised where we find ourselves right now? Going into today, there were you, it was very rare to find a poll that would suggest that the race would not only be as close as it is, but that there was virtually a less than 10% chance that Trump takes the White House again. And, and now we find ourselves in essentially a, a rough tie. We're waiting for a lot of results, which are leaning towards Joe Biden. But right now, as it stands, we... There is no certainty that it's going to tip either way. Are you surprised that on Wednesday morning, the day after Election Day, this is what we're like, this is the position that we're finding ourselves in? Or was this something that you were expecting to happen? So I am surprised, um, but I am not. I guess I, I'm, I'm surprised, but um, I can't think of the word, but I will explain. So. Um, yes, you know, I, I was really ex excited to see the polling, um, of course, as I, as I was excited to see the polling in 2016, but I've, I think like all, a lot of us, we've learned to keep our expectations low when it comes to the polling industry. Um, I was speaking about this with my roommates last night. Um, as much as I think the Trump presidency has mobilized Democrats to the polls this year. I think our mobilization has mobilized them even more. So, so as much as as much as we uh, as excited as we were about our early voting turnout, it was amazing. Um, record turnout. It, it's it's great. It's really, um, I, I believe, regardless of you know your party preference, that 
our democracy is healthier and better when more people to participate. If everyone were to participate, that would be a dream come true. Um, but I, but I do think that uh, through social media, you know, and the news, um, the news disseminating so quickly and so uh, so widely, Republican or I don't want to say Republicans, but Trump supporters were scared of the power of the Democrats getting out this year. So I, I think that, yes, like I'm, I'm disappointed at where we are at like this morning. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't shock me entirely too much. Yeah. I think the way that you explained that turnout reality was, was very well said this, it was clear that Democrats were going to turn out big because they're upset with Trump. They're disappointed. The COVID crisis has only made this worse. But did the expected turnout of Democrats actually mobilize more Republicans? That could be a possibility that we're, we're looking at. And I think it's really interesting because we are seeing Trump match his 2016 numbers in a lot of states or exceed them. And I don't think that's necessarily something that people anticipated. And that is going to be something to look for because the just as Trump won the presidency by these narrow margins, by these thin hair margins, that look, looks like what Biden might be able to do. But there's obviously complications that come into play, the mail-in ballots, the, the legal challenges that may come from this. It's all it's all kind of happening and it's all crazy. Um I kind of want to shift gears to North Carolina for a second because that's where we both are right now. And arguably, this is the closest state in the entire election. While we're still waiting for some results in the other states, it looks like there will be a clear winner, whether it goes one way or the other. But in North Carolina, it's coming down really to the wire. And I know a lot of Wake Forest students decided to cast their ballots here this election cycle because of how important North Carolina is. And there were huge get out the vote initiatives and uh, candidates spent a lot of time here, but it's still coming down to these just a handful of votes. Is there anything more that you feel like either campaign could have done here or that voters could have done here? Wow, that's a that's a tough question. Um, I do. I know that Cal Cunningham did spend a few of the last days here in Winston, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure that I ever saw or heard of Tom Tillis doing um, get out, like get out the vote events or rallies of any type. So that, that definitely interests me. Um, I like a lot of us that know about this race. Um, I definitely don't think the scandal with Cal Cunningham helped him at all. Um, I read an article where one of Tom Tillis's top staffers said, this is the break that we've been waiting for. And that is just devastating because um, Cal was polling really well, and this this mistake just just gave Tom Tillis uh, that that you know those those things that he was looking for to um, to manipulate. So, in terms of voters and um, and mobilizing voters, I think that Wake Forest did a really great job this year uh, getting students out. Um, I worked with Deeks Decide this year um, to to mobilize students. Um, because our turnout has not been great in the past. In 2016, it was only 40% of students, even though registration was 70%. Uh, 
so I, I'm, I'm really hoping that as, as, as much as students at Wake registered, I'm hoping that they followed through and, and went to the polls. Um, so I, th- I think it's really about accountability in terms of vo- voters, um, especially during COVID. There's not a lot of these events that we see. I mean, there are on, on the Trump campaign, but um, it's about holding your friends accountable, your acquaintances, um, your professors, uh, just anybody, anybody that you come in contact with, um, not necessarily putting a political party preference on them, but just asking them to participate and asking them what they need to participate. So I think because like, COVID, during COVID, it, it's just very difficult to, to do these like large scale efforts. Um, yeah, I, I think that Cal Cunningham probably could have, uh, I can't really think of the word, but tried to clean up the mess a little better um, because as, as bad as that, as bad as that scandal was, he didn't really make it better for himself afterwards, um, especially with, you know, interviews that, that came quickly after. Um, so I think Tom Tillis really just took a step back and, and somehow he's, uh, somehow we're here, somehow we're here in a close race and it doesn't quite make sense to me. Um, but honestly, I'm not sure what people could have done better other, other than that. I did read a lot of reporting that was saying that after that scandal broke, which you're right, it did not help him by any means. He was, especially because his campaign was based primarily on his character. It was definitely a character-oriented, centered campaign. And, you know, that's the arguably the ultimate, you know, crack in your character is what happened with him. And I did read a lot of reporting that was saying that after that, he kind of just, you know— he retreated into the dark, kind of stood in the corner. Tom Tillis was out doing media interviews. He was doing rallies. And, you know, we didn't hear a lot from Cal Cunningham in the past couple of weeks, which I don't think helped. It helps to see the candidate out and about projecting confidence in the community. And, and we didn't see that from him. So that's tough. And um, I also think that what we have learned so far in the election, while there's much more to be learned, we have learned that the Trump election in 2016 was not a fluke. Like this, we, we may have, you know, projected going into the election, it was a weird political time. People were looking for a political outsider. People were looking for someone to shake things up. And we've now determined that that, that maybe wasn't the case. People are choosing him again in big numbers. And arguably, even if Joe Biden wins the presidency, our country is is not where we thought it would be at this point. We're really divided. There's a lot of hatred. Um, we're essentially in two camps um, in terms of an international space. People are looking at the United States as, as a fractured country. We're weakened by our division. There's a lot of uncertainty. The election looks messy from abroad. What are your views in terms of where we go next? If, if Biden wins or if Trump wins, the, the reality of our country and where we stand really doesn't change and it hasn't changed much since 2016. Yeah, so if Biden wins, um, and again, I'm, I'm trying to stay as optimistic as possible because this could drag out for a while and um, there's no point in, in 
you know, doom and gloom at this at, on, on day two. Um, I'm hoping that if Biden, if there's a Biden presidency, that he will follow through with his word and not be president for blue states or red states, but be a president for the United States and be a president that everybody can, um, that, 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 um, uh, shares the interests of everyone. Um, now what, what that looks like, who's to say, um, with such a polarized country, as you say. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident that he can be that man for the United States. Um, I, I don't have as much faith in Donald Trump doing that. Uh, I do find it interesting that last night after his win, um, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell was talking about the uncertainty of the presidency and, and made a comment about um, like, we have a lot, we have a lot of, of work ahead of us. We've got a lot of challenges um, and I think he meant in terms of the country, um, just how fractured we are. And so I found that very interesting that maybe although Donald Trump doesn't have the interest of bringing folks together, maybe maybe other Republicans do. And that's my hope. That That is my hope. Um, where do we go from here? Yeah. In, in four years, regardless... Um, there's going to be another election. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can make some progress these next four years, um, especially when it comes to voter protection and enfranchisement. Uh, unfortunately, our federal courts have been, have been um, packed. Packed is really not the right word because um, it's used for the Supreme Court, but um, it's been filled with a lot of Republican uh, Trump appointees that may that may make that difficult but i know there's a lot of great organizations doing amazing work trying to get as many voters enfranchised and registered and to the polls as possible so i think that this election uh regardless of the outcome will will uh, mobilize people to care a little more about you know who's participating in our democracy because i know i care about that um just goes back to what i said earlier everybody should participate but we have to make sure they can. Um, so that's what I'm hoping. Such a good point because, you know, voting rights is arguably at the center of this election in a way that no one really expected. And there's a concerted effort on the part of the Trump administration, as we've seen in his speech last night and in previous speeches, to directly create obstacles and create barriers for these votes to be counted. And, and it's a problem because it's fundamental to our to our rights that we vote. And when that comes into question, you know, things get a little dicey because that's that's not something we question. Like, this is a given. We are all allowed to vote. We all have that right. But there is this effort in place to kind of undermine that. And it's dangerous. And I, I do appreciate the fact that you said early on that well, this is day two, you know, we don't want to be defeated or we don't want to feel any certain way on day two, implying without saying that this will last multiple days. And and this is something that, that experts have been telling us for months, that this will last days. But we are impatient people and we want to know the answers to things immediately. And with our fast news cycle, we get answers very quickly arguably like our pace of life has become faster with social media and with the internet like we want to know things now and we are not patient and I think that I give these experts and um, analysts a lot of credit for for calling out the fact that 
early on that we are going to have to wait a while because that is what we're seeing. Like there were some murmurs about, you know, possible Texas blue victories and, and Georgia and, and all of these possibilities. But when it comes down to it, this is exactly what was supposed to happen and expected to happen is it was going to take a little while. And so it's definitely a little test for us. Um, to kind of be patient and, and wait for the result. And I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on that development that arguably like this is exactly what was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's amazing how many people our age don't know that uh, in, in Bush versus Gore, we didn't know the result until uh, I wanna say like early December, early mid-December. Um, and so, th- you know, we were babies. Of course, of course we wouldn't know that, but this is really not um, unprecedented, like so much of what we're going through right now. Um, I, I give like, like you, I give the analysts and the experts a ton of credit. Um, I know on social media, on, on my social media feeds, there are a lot of people trying to calm down the masses that are freaking out today um, and freaking out last night because because it is going to go on for a while. Um, the Georgia special election is going to have a runoff and that's not until I believe like January 5th. So we definitely won't know the makeup of the Senate 100% uh, until then. So I think that, I think that um, honestly, education, um, educating your friends without obviously being condescending or um, anything like that, educating your friends on like the facts of this case, um, trying to as much as you can to do it without opinions or without, um, I guess, extreme opinions. Um, If you're on social media, kind of making sure that you're fact checking um, what you're seeing. I know that I retweeted something this morning and I went back and I thought, where was the source for that information? And I tried to look it up, couldn't find it, unretweet because that's that's what we do these days. Social media is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. Share, like you don't even you don't even think about it for a second. And all it does is causes hysteria. And that's the last thing we, we need right now. Um, and I know that Trump is is trying to cause that chaos um, by pronouncing himself the victor. But like America needs calm and level-headedness right now right now and if Joe Biden wins I think that that is I think that that is going to, is indicative of like of, of our next four years hopefully it will be a calm that we haven't seen in a while I'm really glad that you brought that up about the retweeting and the sharing because I'm guilty of that too you see something that kind of strikes you it catches your eye and and you want to share it and you want people to know it so you you retweet it and you post it and then you know you realize that oh it's it's false information or the source isn't clear or it's actually more complicated than that and it's tough because it's our natural instinct to want to get out this information and and educate people and it can backfire sometimes and I, I think that that is a tough thing. It's so hard to remember, but I think that it really is important to, before you promote or share new information, just to take a little bit of a closer look to make sure that that what you're putting out into the world is, is factually based and it's proven and it's the truth. 
and that way and, and that's great to to promote and, and share but it is tough like I've done that or, or someone sends an article and you read the headline and then you share but there's way more meat in there and, and people spend a lot of time crafting this information there's more to know and it's not always as simple as the headline and so I really think it is important to remember that I want to kind of end on in a local way back in North Carolina for, for the listeners that don't know, Forsyth County has gone blue. That is kind of a confirmed thing. Um, and Gwyneth's fist pumping. And yeah, yes, it, it is really nice to see that. And that wasn't necessarily a surprise. Wake Forest does make up a lot of the county. And we have a lot of students here. And it was nice to see. But I really attribute the extent to which it turned it went blue to the addition of the the first church, the Winston-Salem First Church, as an early voting site. Yesterday, I took a little ride around to try and capture some photos and, and, and see what was going on at the polls. The Bethabar Moravian Church and the Salem Church, I forget the full name, and there was really no one there. And whether that was because we all voted early or because things were being processed quickly, um, there were there were no long lines, um, no people drinking water, eating sandwiches outside. It, it seemed to be going really well. And then it, it occurred to me that before the establishment of the Winston-Salem uh, First Church of God um, early voting site, that was where Wake Forest students voted. And to make it even more complicated, where the dorm you live on campus determines which one of those you go to. Our campus is literally divided in half for voting precincts. And so if you live in one place, you go to one. If you live in another place, you go to another. And neither are walking distance. And they're not short drives, probably a, a, a five plus minute drive. I mean, it is short, but it's not around the corner. I really think that that made a difference. And I'm hoping that we can reestablish that as a as an option for future students in, in all future elections, because I think honestly, it's the bare minimum of what we need in terms of, in terms of how college students can vote. We need to make it as easy as possible. A lot of college students don't have cars, don't venture far off campus all the time. So I, I'm, I want to know your views on this too, because I really think that this, despite the fact that Forsyth County went blue, I really think that that was a game changer. What do you think? Yeah. So I completely agree that this location was a game changer. Um, I, I announced it in class the, the day before early voting started and everybody went, Ooh, like that's a very close location. Um, you, you can, you can walk there. It is unfortunate that that is not our polling location on election day. And it's incredibly unfortunate that we are split because, because if you're a, you know, political science students, they are of course going to know where their polling location is. We know this, they're more likely to vote also, but for the rest of the student body that may not know as much about politics, or they might not, you know, they might not be as interested in it, but they they want to participate in democracy. Um, they might not have access to that information. It might not be on their social media feed because their friends don't, don't know about it either. Um, so I think that that would be an incredible addition to, or an incredible change to make, um, to make it easier for Wake Forest. Winston-Salem State, I believe, has a um, an early voting location on their campus. Um, so uh, that would be an amazing addition to our uh, Beaks Decide voting plan. Um, I know that 
uh, we were we were looking at that pre-COVID. Um, unfortunately, you know, January, February, that was a big conversation we were having with Deeks Decide. Um, can we can we get an early, a voting location on campus? Can we do that? Um, and and it was looking and it was looking okay. Um, but then but then COVID hit, and of course, um, rightly so, Wake Forest doesn't want to open up our our gates to. Uh, visitors at the moment, um, which completely makes sense. So I'm hoping that, you know, in two years, four years, Wake Forest will be able to make that contribution to the community because at that point, there's really no excuse as a Wake Forest student to not participate. Um, We have on-campus voting uh, registration drives. If we had an on-campus location, that would would, um, do wonders for our turnout. So to your question about Forsyth County turning blue, I'm ecstatic. And I do think that the addition of early voting sites, uh, like it, it, it was a significant, um, factor in, in how people turned out. And it's really great to hear that, you know, election on election day, um, nationwide, there weren't long lines preventing people from, uh, preventing people from casting their ballots. There weren't significant technological difficulties. Um, and it's because of early voting sites uh, like the church across the street that made that possible. Those are all great points that you made. And I appreciate the suggestion that there is improvement. Um, in, there are improvements that can be made. For example, bringing the uh, Winston-Salem First Church location uh, making that an election day location as well, because that would only help uh, students be able to vote who, who didn't make it to early voting or for whatever reason, you know, give them one extra day, an important day. Um, it would also help to uh, allow North Carolina to register voters on election day as well. Um, I'm seeing statistics coming out of Michigan, a state where you can register to vote on election day. And I'm seeing that yesterday they registered as many as 18,000 new voters on Election Day. And that's a that statistic should not be ignored because it's just more opportunities to, to bring new voters into the system. And so there is an opportunity for North Carolina to adopt that policy, get this uh, local church to to be a, a new location for students. There's a lot of opportunity there. We made some significant improvements. We made some jumps, but there is, there's definitely room to improve as well. So now we are, um, again, Wednesday, November 4th, the day after election, a, a lot of uh, elections. We wake up on this morning, on Wednesday morning, and, and we know what we're dealing with. We know who our new president is. That is not the case today. And we're we're keeping tabs on it and we're going to learn more throughout the day and, and throughout the week. But Gwyneth, you've provided some some great insights to our listeners. And this has been a really engaging conversation. And I really want to thank you for making the time um, with with so much going on today and in the world and, and just taking your eyes off the news for for even a 30 minutes can be difficult. So I really want to thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. Those were some amazing questions. Really made me think, for sure. Um, So thank you so much for inviting me, having me. Deeks and Democracy is produced and edited by Elizabeth Moline and is made in collaboration with Wake Forest student newspaper, The Old Golden Black.
stay tuned for our next episode. Again, when I talk with Lizzie Herbs about her work with North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein's campaign against our own Forsyth County District Attorney Jim O'Neill. And later in the series, I'll be sitting down with both presidents of college Republicans and Democrats on campus, digesting and debriefing all the results of the 2020 races.